I don't know. Whatever. RPGs lied to yeah. me. They say they get there. That's the problem with, with RPGs is that even they're always unrealistic because they're not preparing us for actual life in these other worlds. <laughs> that's, that's the real problem. I'm Will Hindmarch. I'm a writer, narrative designer, graphic designer, and game designer. I'm Nathan Pletta. I'm an independent game designer, self-publisher, and graphic artist. Welcome to another episode of the Design Games Podcast. Will, what are we talking about today? Today we're talking about some of the questions that we pose for ourselves at the beginning of a design or early on in a design to help us understand what that design is about. So I have a, a, a thought that I, that I turned into a question, a piece of self-reflection that I thought would be worth talking about. Cool. What are some things that I, I think of as kind of like structural elements, but that's, we don't need to play the definition game, but like what are, what's some stuff that when you're sitting down, you know, like I have my idea, I kind of know what this game is probably going to be about, or I have my inspiration or whatever. When you actually sit down with pen to, to, to paper or fingers to keyboard, mm-hmm. What are a couple things, perhaps three, that you think about that tends to maybe cut across, maybe not every single design you've ever done, but absent anything else to, to push you in a direction, what's something that you think about to kind of hang your hat on is, I can start designing a game by thinking about this. For me, historically, one of the first things, and this, is, this isn't the highfalutin answer, I have a highfalutin answer, which is the second one. But if I, had, if I needed 1D4 of these, uh, uh, to answer with. One of them for sure is why a game and not, because for me especially, where I dabble in fiction of all stripes and, and I mean scripts and comics or whatever it is that I can get my hands on to write, I want to write it. Am I sure this is a game? And the way I get myself to do that is to say why is it a game? Not is it a game because that answer is often yes, but doesn't get me the answer I need in terms of why is it. Right. What's, what is, when you're playing this game, what what are you playing with, right? Like, what's the where's the play come from? Is that one way to think about? It? As opposed to like, if you're writing a story, you don't really need to think about the play aspect, right? Right. Yeah. Where where are the choices? Where are the branches? And and that can come up in fiction, the, the decisions that the character makes. But why is it better either for me to not make the decisions, right? To say, okay, so the game is about this and all the outcomes of these choices. If I'm doing an adventure or something that's strongly adventure first in its focus. Uh, but why is it better if if the number of outcomes is many as opposed to if it is exploring one specific chain through a thing, which is what a, which is what a, a traditional like a novel or a short story or something would do with it? Huh, that's interesting. I hear that as what choices what's what's the spectrum of choices I want to present to be made in play? Right. And why is it why is me not being able to decide if I can say that in this setting this is a game about Narcole- or non-narcoleptic uh, fighter pilots. It's a game about yeah having to run one more mission late at night in a in a in, in a sortie against German aircraft in World War One. Let's say right. For example, if the thing if the question is do I dare do one more mission? I can barely keep my eyes open, but but we can make a real difference. If the answer is obviously yes, let's do one more mission. Then it might not be a game. It might be a story. And if the answer is compelling in either direction, and I can't make up my mind, then there might be a game there. Because both answers are compelling. So right? That's the only way to answer that question, but it's one of the things that I know that I've gone through. Do you find that it changes the nature of the game? You could say there's a choice here about going on the mission or not, and that's one potential game. We'll go ahead and assume that your answers are all going to take you down the game path. Right? Sure, sure. So one potential game is like, do I go on the mission or not? 
or do we or whatever. Right. Does the crew assemble or not? And then another set of potential choices is once the mission is gone on, whether getting there is part of play or not, do I stay awake long enough to achieve whatever the goals of the mission are or not? Right. Or there are three goals of the mission and I can only gain one of them. How right. do I go, you know, what, what's the process of play to go around figuring out which one? So, so to me, right. that's, that's right. kind of a, an interesting answer because it like, because those are, those are three different games or three different phases, phases maybe, yeah. of one game, right? But you could take, take it in either direction. And, th and that happens in part, right? Once I realize that something is gameable or is a game, it can be made into a game, then the way that those choices fracture and fork and blossom is really interesting. But every once in a while, for example, and, and this is uh, uh, our show is called Design Games, not Design Everything. So I'm gonna, I'll, 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 I'm not gonna go too far down this road. But is that when I find or decide that the answer is this thing wants to be a story or this thing wants to be a poem or whatever it is, two things that are important is that one, there are decisions that I have to make that in a game I would heighten or enrich or, or dramatize for the players, make it so that the choices are more, so that every choice is compelling and. Because right in fiction, I might only write, I might go down a little bit of a road of what happens if I don't fly the mission. But the rest of the story is about that character flying the mission, let's say. So, so that's where the that's where all the writing is going to happen. Or I realize and I protect the stuff that I am not exhausting by making it not a game. Which is to say, me writing a short story about this does not preclude me making a game about it later. Me making a game about it doesn't preclude me writing a short story for the game or whatever. But me making a game about it probably precludes me making another game about it. Not, not in any hard and fast rule, right? Right, but, but as, a, as a matter of your personal attention span and ability to, to continue doing work. Yeah. I'm like I, that too, where like if I do a game about one thing, I'm pretty unlikely to visit that same source, you know, go to that same well for, for an entirely different game right. about the same subject matter. Or, yeah, and especially in, in, in my cases, because I don't want to say, I know that I will, I've done this, especially I do it in fiction more than I do it in games, but I don't want to get into a place where I say, I know I am holding back. I know I am leaving something good out of this game in case I want to put it in my next World oh. War One uh, uh, stay up all night and fly, fly fighter planes game. That, those are, that's a terrible reason to not put something into a game. There are lots of good reasons to cut stuff out, I and mean, to kill darlings, as they say, right, and to, to take out great stuff. But if the one of them is, no, because I'm going to do another one, it's going to be even better. Well, no, just make this one great. Yeah, not, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Like, there's no, because you, you never know if you're going to make it to that next to that next game. Right. It's part of it. You know? And you're going to have 20 new ideas between now and that game anyway, yeah, you'll, so let you'll, those ideas, yeah. You'll have changed by then anyway. Exactly. And you'll have a better idea that better suits your personal growth and audience and all that business. What about you, Nathan? What's one of the first things then that you think about that you find that cuts across multiple projects this way? I, I gave myself uh, permission to come up with exactly three answers cool. for this. Because uh, as I said, this kind of came out of some self-reflection. I pretty much always think about the structure of the game in a kind of logistic sense. To like actually get started, like what is this? You know, what content do I need to have in these in these rules that people are going to read to like turn what I have in my head into a table mm -hmm. experience? How does the game start? Which actually I think hooks into like where do you start giving choices, right? Because if, if if the game starts when you receive your your orders for this mission and you've already been up for seventy two hours, and that's when the game starts. Right. That's one game. That's one. You know. That's 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 one place. Or does it start in the air? You have your mission, right. and you've been up for 72 hours. That's maybe an alternate way to think about that. 
Uh, so yeah, so where does it start? And then where does it end? For me, I've, I've done a, a lot of bounded games that have very discrete endpoints, which is, you know, a style, a, a choice. But for me, it's really useful because it allows me to cut extraneous stuff pretty easily, I'd say. Mm. And um, just the, the, the way that I like to play games tends to be in shorter arcs that have kind of a discrete, and now we've finished the game right. kind of thing. So more and more, I'm, I'm with you in that. In that I, I mean, I love the, the open-ended potential and the ongoing play of, uh, of games that allow for, the, for, the, for an organic end that is to the campaign and not necessarily to the game structure itself. But I'm also very enamored, especially lately, with the idea of having some influence over how long a game plays for by, by, uh, by assigning it. Because it's easy to extend a middle in an RPG if you want to. But to say, this game is essentially over when this happens, or when you reach this point, when you've made these final decisions, or whatever it is, when this resource runs out, whatever it is. Because in some ways, that actually can get people playing longer and better or richer, tighter, more potent because they're not saving stuff for a day that will never come. And because if, if that's a five session or a seven session, let's say, game that you've got set up, people are more likely to play it now for five or seven sessions as opposed to three just because they want to have, they'll know that there's closure. Now they might play it for five or seven instead of 10, but I don't know what number of players I was going to catch for that long anyway, you know, or, or, right. or what have you. But yeah, it just creates a more kind of encapsulated, I don't want to say complete, but but. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm with you. Yeah, having like a district boundary, it just, I, I think, I don't know, I, I just think I find it useful and, and more engaging for me to play. I think exactly because of that idea of not saving stuff for later. And that's different for different games, right? Like some games are a hard a one session game and another can be more of a, as you say, a resource driven thing. Right. You know, once you're out of or have gotten the maximum number of this or that resource that triggers an end game or you have now achieved the end of the mechanical cycle of the game, maybe there's fictional stuff that is worth continuing playing and maybe mm -hmm. not. That depends on the game. But as part of the design process, figuring out like where how does this game start and how does it start also both fictionally, like what's the, the status of the characters, that kind of thing. Right. And also just like functionally, like do you start by making characters or do you start in some other way doing world building or right. do you start with some kind of like pre-game workshop experience or like whatever like do so. you start together or do you start individually when you've each got your book or pdf or whatever yeah i mean how do you know when you're actually in it yeah yeah that's a great question um how so where does it start where does it end i often a lot of my games have phases mm -hmm. right so like what phases does this game go through uh, maybe discrete, like Annalise has like very discrete phases that actually have uh, kind of fictionally driven um, changeovers. It's kind of a, when you know that you're done with this as a table, then go to this new phase, which actually has some new rules that you engage with. While others might have a, like a, a mechanical trigger for a different phase. Or it can be a little more conceptual that I, that I think about in the design process, but isn't necessarily reflected in the game, uh, where like you have kind of a, a structure where you know you have a, a process of finding out about the characters and everyone kind of settles in or whatever and kind of getting things kicked off and then you know what's the meat of the game what's the you know scenario or what's the session to session juice that keeps things going those could be different kinds of things and you can kind of encode those in your design if you want to push things that way or at least be aware of them as you design 
In a way that, that includes, or it sounds like, right, you're already thinking about the play cycle mm -hmm. um, at that stage. Um, and the play cycle, of course, just uh, uh, for clarity, right, is it's the kind of, whether it's a, a, a loop or a triangle or whatever, you know, whatever it is, but you level up so that you can fight monsters, so that you can get treasures, so that you can level up, so that you can fight monsters, so you can get treasures, right, that loop, uh, which can be considerably more complicated than I just make it sound. Having that loop, uh, uh, one of the things I really love about, about what you're saying is, I was just thinking the other day about how we seldom think about in the gameplay loop or when I read articles about massive, about AAA video games doing the gameplay loop, for example. I mean, I think about the gameplay loop a lot, but I don't, I'm not a servant to it. I try to keep it serving me, right? I try to always remember that I can add or remove nodes and what have you. But, but very often we don't actually think about, we think about which one is first, but not how you actually enter the loop. Right? We think about, I mean, the tutorial comes up sometimes, whether it's a video game or, or, or a demo level or a character creation or whatever it is. But the thing that we often are, is, is invisible to us in the actual play experience during design is, is, how you, is when you leave it. Because some games, you move from one cycle to another, whether different levels behave differently or different phases of the game behave, behave differently or what have you. But also is that notion that when do players actually find a seam where they can hop off? Because sometimes, in some games, you don't want that. And in some games, that's inevitable. And you want to say, look, uh, like I've, I've been playing a lot of Destiny lately, and in Destiny there's a thing, it has a certain number of bounties every day that you can log on and do, and they refresh every, every 24 hours into new bounties, different tasks to do. And every day there's a story, which is one of the story missions that you can do, and it's at a new level of difficulty. Well, so it's possible they're essentially saying there's this much content per day. If you don't do it today, it's not there tomorrow. Something else will be there in its place tomorrow. Which means that if I sit down and I do five bounties worth of stuff, which I seldom do, and one story mission, I have a point to jump off. I can say, great, I played Destiny today, I played for 45 minutes or an hour or whatever it is, I'll try again in a couple of days, mm -hmm. I'll get some more stuff, and in that process you, there are also gameplay cycles for getting equipment so you can level up your gear, so you can level up your character, and you know, onward and onward, so that even if I run out of content but I still want to play, I can be like, well, I'll just I'll keep playing until I get three green things that drop that I can use to level up this other thing or whatever. And, and those kind of exit points being built in or being able to recognize them is something that we don't often get to think about because we don't see, we don't get that kind of telemetry. Everybody playing on the Xbox, right, there's data generated all the time. Mm -hmm. in, in our games, that data takes the form of heavily biased actual play reports or the occasional recording or what have you. And I say heavily biased, not necessarily in a bad way, right, but just the fact that it's still, it's, it's an authored thing. It's the, it's the nature of the, of the beast, right? Yeah, like yeah. Your, each individual table experience is just not being measured in that way. That's a really interesting Thing to think about. I'm like how does somebody know when a session is over in a multi-session right. game, right? And yeah. is, is how often is that based on time and how often is that based on... Like we've talked about before, you know, some of, a lot, or I, I think a lot of that um, comes to, to playcraft and player GM skill. And you see that a lot in like uh, GM advice kind of stuff where it's like end on a cliffhanger or be aware of the pacing of the session and of, and of real time so that 45 minutes before everyone has to go home you start bringing things back together so that there's kind of like a moment that's right. kind of like a, you know, a, an episode break from TV show kind of moment, that kind of thing. I think designing for, for that is really interesting. The example that comes to mind is, again, from Apocalypse World, which is one of the, one of, one of the later stage experience things you can do for your character is essentially graduate and retire the character safely and then move on. You know, you can either, you can start playing a new character, you can take over an NPC and start playing them or 
just be done playing that game or whatever. That was that's one of the things that that I really like about that game because it's a very discrete ending point that's a player authored thing. Because mm-hmm. as my earlier thing was saying, a lot of the time that's a dramatic sense, the GM driven thing, or a game encoded. When you're out of hit points, your character dies or whatever. Like that's a mechanically encoded endpoint for your character. Right. Uh, while the if you play long enough, you get enough experience to stop playing in the manner in which you want to ride off into the sunset. The One Ring actually has a similar mechanism to it, which is um, where, uh, because the, the there are multiple competing loops of your character losing hope over time, uh, uh, falling to corruption over time, possibly losing their health, uh, and the question is you can get to a point where you say, okay, it's time for this character to hop off the train, hop off the adventure, the adventuring path, leave the adventurer's life, go back to the Shire and live quietly. And depending on when you do that, if you do retire, you pass a certain amount of XP onto your next character. And if you don't, if your character dies in the field, then that doesn't happen. Hmm. But then there are a couple little abilities that, that lock into that in interesting ways, including a character who, for example, can be presumed dead and then come back. Um, so that the first time you die, you lose some stuff, but you don't, or that you can pass a magical heirloom onto somebody else, even though you've retired or died or whatever. And so there are lots of little things that, again, fit into that player author, player authored dynamic of how the gameplay loop opens or closes and where you can hop on and off it. Yeah, I love that stuff. Yeah, that, I think that actually you know is is one version of another of my answers, which is that uh, once I kind of have a sense or I'm on the path to figuring out the structure, I start thinking about the reward cycles of the game. Mm-hmm. What what does a game, you know, game back to, what is your game about, how is it about it? How is this game, what behaviors is this game going to reward? And in, in which ways is it going to reward them? Often there's multiple, there's multiple cycles, right? There's, um, I, I usually try to think in terms of short-term and long-term. Sometimes I think about mechanical effectiveness and um, fictional effectiveness as not necessarily always running concurrently, right? Like a one, one reward cycle may, may be about uh, building up mechanical efficacy while another is about being able to author things or yeah. you know, do stuff fictionally that's important. And those can, can cross each other at different times. So yeah, whether that's just like, is there leveling up in this game? Is there experience of one form or another? Or you know, are the reward cycles more of a moment-to-moment thing? How do they actually work? Are they about um, resolution? Do they affect the ability to, to maybe work, work together or keep other people from working together? Or like what kinds of right. things uh, and what rule stuff can that do? And this is a place where like blocking in mechanics usually starts. I'm like, oh, well, you know, yes, there will be some kind of fortune resolution. So here's a 2d6 mechanic right. for now until I figure out more. You know, maybe I'll revisit this later or oh i had this great idea for this stacking set of different colored dice but yeah that pretty much oh like i when i'm at a state where i'm like all right how do i keep like what's the next step in working on this i'll usually be like all right have i thought about the reward cycles which makes a lot of sense yeah is that that i mean what what the game rewards what the game is uh what the game wants to talk about and wants the players to talk about that's close to i think what would be my second one which is in some ways the core unit of play I talk about a lot, which is not necessarily the reward cycle. It can be a, it can be a reward cycle. It can be part of a reward cycle. It can be like one one square in the flowchart or whatever. But what is the not necessarily the smallest atomic unit of play, 
though it can be. But so depending on the game, in D&D, the core unit of play is, and this is actually changing by additions and adventures can riff on this and change it up. But if you will, one of the core units of play in D&D is hit a monster so that it dies and XP and treasure comes out and then you can move on to the next one. Um, but that moment where a monster turns into treasure or turns into XP is kind of its one of its core units. In Halo, one of the, the I know that they talked about this, this was years ago, obviously, but in the Halo games, it's that moment when you have taken a shot at the enemy, go to cover for your shields to recharge, and then dodge out and throw a grenade. That moment, that little beat, is one of the atomic things that the game riffs on. How long are you in cover for? How long can you shoot for? How many grenades do you have? When is it smart? To, what kind of grenade do you throw? When is it smart to do that? And that watching that change from Halo 1 through the various Halo games as it sometimes it injects more narrative, sometimes it injects more tactics, sometimes it changes what you want to do strategically. Mm-hmm. It gives you different guns with which to riff on that dynamic. But it, like I said, it doesn't have to be that small. For example, the, the core unit of Shadowrun is the Shadowrun. And if the core unit of, the, of Shadowrun is the Shadowrun, how, is, how do we reconcile the fact that the Shadowrun is made up of all these different moving parts and all these different little characters and all these different moments? And in my experience, which is not actually all that much in Shadowrun, I, was, I, I played Cyberpunk 2020 more than Shadowrun, but is that Shadowruns almost never actually occur in the wild. You talk about a Shadowrun, you attempt a Shadowrun, you screw up a Shadowrun, you deal with the fallout of a failure or, of a, or a betrayal or whatever it is. But the Shadowrun, uh, uh, qua Shadowrun, where this is how the jo- this is what the job is looms over that game in a beautiful way in that the characters all presumably have successful shadow runs in their past they've right, all done it there is there is theoretically a reason why these people are good at the you know are and have decided to this. keep doing this yeah. right have decided that this is the way I'm going to make my money this is what I'm going to do with my life is I'm going to run shadows which is not what you say but I'm going to I'm going to engage in shadow runs and and so, do better. Would you say, because I actually don't know Shadowrun pretty much at all, other than what people, you know, how people talk about it. What is different about a Shadowrun versus kind of the moment-to-moment, like if I get in, if we get in a fight with some guards, that makes it different from a D&D, go into the dungeon, get treasure, go back to the town, that contains within it all those moments of right. hitting a monster until XP comes out. I think I think in, in the history of Shadowrun, the similarities were part of the selling point and the entry point in the original Shadowrun. It's, it's, it's not, I, don't, I don't know if it's fair to say that it's mostly cosmetic, but a lot of it is in presentation, which is that in D&D, while the dungeon is important and it's right there in the name, hmm. and in Shadowrun, it's right there in the name, Shadowrun, D&D's abilities, its language, its spells, all of those things, are the emphasis in those is in turn-by-turn action. Shadowrun's abilities and skills and stuff, the emphasis is in turn-by-turn action. But the narrative and the fiction and where what it sketches out in terms of what identifies the characters as people is a little more macro. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is where, uh, uh, you can, for me, I can start getting ideas about character design and, and how, or character class design or whatever it is. In a lot of class-based games, the individual class imports a particular core unit of yeah. play, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the, the core moment, that one of the core atomic units of play for the wizard is different than the one for the fighter. And then you can watch that change through diff- different editions of D&D and like D&D 4 where the idea was to make them all much more similar so that mm-hmm. you could play any one of those classes, which I thought was great fun for, 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 for when it was fun, it was fun. I loved it. And then I feel like I had played the permutations that were interesting to me. And, right. I, and that was where I hopped off one of the reward cycles. All right, so I 
think about structure and I think about rewards. Mm -hmm. Almost connecting those two in some ways, I think about pressure in terms of what elements of this game are going to put pressure on the characters and make this into a table experience where people are going to end up coming up with creative stuff that they would not otherwise if they were not playing this game in particular. Because that's kind of right. my... That, that's what I want my game design to do. You're playing this game in particular, and therefore you and your friends are going to come up with stuff that you never would have on your own or using another set of tools. Right, in a way that just having the existence of a genre in the world or, of, or the title of the game doesn't help people actually create and spark all this stuff. The game puts that pressure on. It says right. you will, you're going to come up with great stuff mm -hmm. that if I just said to you... Right, like wrestling RPG, here's some six-siders, right. you know, go to town. You'll probably come up with some awesome stuff because I've, you're a smart, creative people who love wrestling, right? That's why you're playing this game. But the specific mechanisms in the game that I designed push that conversation into a place that you wouldn't get otherwise. And so, yeah, so the sense of pressure, which can be, I think, you know, kind of subset of that, I think about antagonism. Where do the characters, where do their plans get derailed? Who is pushing against them? Um, is it a GM plays the bad guys kind of scenario? Is it a player versus player scenario where the character, you know, your each individual characters are pointed at each other? Or is the game itself providing some kind of, usually mechanical once it goes to the game level, but some kind of like mechanical antagonism or some kind of uh, procedurally generated antagonism. Right. Which is, is something I'm, I, I, I try to be aware of, which is like, this is all, like, these are all conceptual models that are not how all games work, right? Like not every game needs discrete antagonism. But for, for the games that I design, that's usually where I start. And maybe sometimes it, gets, it, it leaves or gets demoted to a lower kind of hmm. emphasis level. But I pretty much always think of it when I'm getting started. It's really interesting to me. Uh, yeah, when you the stages you think about antagonism here in that pressure situation, which I think I mean is very apt because I think I tend to think about that in fiction and reward cycle. And I'm not uh, that's, I'm just thinking about this now. This isn't something that I'm like that's where it belongs. I'm thinking that's I realize that's kind of where my muscle memory is mm -hmm. because the pressure on play and the pressure on characters are often very different in my imagination or in the way that I presented just in terms of the order in which I think this stuff out. But I love that. I, I love making it a cogent and connected part of what will spur and stir the players onto creative problem solving and creative talk and will, yeah. will be the part of the shape of the kiln, if you will. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think they, they're all bound up with each other. Yeah. Right? yeah. Wherever the, the, the pressure lives is probably going to be bound up in, in reward cycles because it's either... Because, uh, you, you know, it's either giving you tools to, to push against that antagonism or whatever. Uh, and then the reward cycles are going to be synced up with the structure of the game in some way. You know, they usually they go kick in at certain times, may spit out certain, certain outcomes um, that could provide, uh, like you say, those, those off points, those like on and off points, which I think is a, is a nice metaphor for thinking about, yeah, how, how you kind of mentally engage with what's going on yeah right there's that that notion here where um because there's you know villainy and antagonism are not the same thing obviously mm -hmm. and i know that i do a lot of my intentional design in response to antagonistic gms in a way that says what i want to do is is create as collaborative an environment as possible and so that the antagonism 
is either a, a good sporting, how long can we keep playing catch, how long can we keep this ball in the air, or is something that is almost implicitly provided by the game so that the GMs and the players don't have to be antagonistic to each other outside of friendly dares and competitions, but so that they're cooperative. So for example, in D&D, it's very easy to accidentally be an antagonistic DM, and the game doesn't reward that, right? But it doesn't, but because you're playing the monsters, and the monsters are antagonistic, it's easy. There's a, there's a, I think it's, especially from, from my experience, from when you're a, a, either a, not even a young DM as much as a young human, <laughs> um, to think that well, I'm, I'm doing the best job I can at playing this villainous hobgoblin and losing sight of the fact that if I play him really, really well, nobody's going to play anymore well, there's, or whatever. Yeah, because there's a lopsided information game and a lopsided amount of power in terms of enforcing fictional outcomes. Uh, which I think is pretty well well documented yeah. um, in in people who care about this kind of stuff. The antagonism, yeah, it lives it lives in the fictional world. If it's going to live in the real world, if there's going to be a, a antagonistic relationship between players for the sake of the game, then that's a different set of of tools to draw from that are informed by more like strategy games and and board games. Right. 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 Where to, to so that you can still create a, a compelling play experience, right? Where you're not having the in-game pressure create real rifts between people. Well, here, an example I think of, of, and so stop me if I'm if I'm missing it completely. But is that uh, what, what's fascinating to me is that we we're changing, and it's not a, not a definition battle kind of way, but that we've changed the shape of the word antagonism as I would apply it in a really helpful to me way, which is. There's a, a form of antagonism here that the best example I can think of is, is um, the components that make up a player's action. Let's say you have move minor standard just because it's a meme. Um, so you have a move action, a, a minor action, and a standard action on your turn, and those are the three, and you can do them in any order. There's a certain amount of antagonism in that, in the, in the sense that if I want to stab this orc, swing on the lantern, cut it loose so that I land on two other orcs, and then grab the treasure item and use it to teleport away, that the game might make it so that I cannot do that in one turn, that that's mm -hmm. at least two turns. There's a, and that's, in this context, a form of antagonism in the sense that it is mm -hmm. a pressure force. I and mean, it's absolutely a pressure force. But, it, but, but making it so that it falls sort of under this, this notion of... And, 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 and I'm torn because on one level, antagonism is, I think, completely apt in the sense that it, it provokes and confines and it provides creative restraints to the, to the player and everything. But on the other hand, it's, a, it's kind of a new way of looking at it to me because I think... Sure. Because it doesn't actually have a, it's a force, sort of, but it has no agency. But it is in very much the way that I like things to be. It's presented by the game, not by the GM. Right. It's not actually, nobody's being antagonistic, mm -hmm. but, but, but there is an antagonist. Right. In a way, yeah, yeah. which is really interesting. Um, and that's kind of like my, my zone. Like, I like, that's where I like to play. Annalise has a very clear version of this where it's a, a co-GM'd, essentially. It's round-robin GM. So on your turn, when you're playing your character... I am GMing for you, but then when Sally's playing her character, you're GMing for her, and then Sally's GMing for right. me. Right. The mechanics of that game are such that the resources that you have to resist you know, this antagonistic fictional creature, there's a vampire in the game that nobody plays, um, outside of like maybe mentioning or embodying for, for a scene, but mm -hmm. not like as a character. So you have a pool of resources to stave off its, what it wants from you and kind of keep it away from you. And also to self-actualize your character as, you know, whatever their ultimate version of themselves is going to be. And that resource pool dwindles sharply. Whenever you do stuff, you're almost always, there's a little bit of, of 
tactical stuff you can do to try and preserve yourself as best you can, but in general, it, it falls off quickly. Mm -hmm. And when you bottom out at certain times, then the creature gains a hold on you as a fictional thing. So everyone has this very sharply antagonistic force coming at them, both from the premise of the game and then also like kind of just the feeling and play. But no, no individual person at the table is responsible for being the antagonistic person right. to the other people who are playing. So that's like a higher level version. Yeah. So in that, the, the <clears throat> vampire is very clearly an antagonist, mm -hmm. even though the players are not the vampire and they're not the antagonist themselves. But I think of this as, as, as restraints, as creative restraints or confinement or uh, uh, channelers, right, in a lot of ways. So this, but I think it's just that I'm, 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 getting, I'm getting interesting, on the one hand, friction, but on the other hand, a lot of, like, traction from the idea of and th these as forms of antagonism, which, which I, I would agree. I mean, I think that's apt. I just, you know, yeah, it's, an exciting, mean, it's an exciting new kind of way to think about the, it. The connotation of the word, I'm, I'm kind of using a very jargony definition that I've arrived at for myself. Sure. So I think there's definitely other ways to think about it. I think channeling and guiding, right, are very apt ways to think about it as well. That, that plugs a lot into what kind of comes off of the reward cycle to me or the core unit of play to me from my list, I guess, which is what do we talk about when we're playing this game? What are we, you know, like, and part of that is what jargon is going to come up, how, which is a very close, obviously, to how is this game about it. But it's sort of in that category of, of if we know what the characters do, what do the players do? Part of that is what terms are going to be a part of this game so that we know how we talk about fighter piloting or mm -hmm. why is the game, like, how is the game about staying up all night? Okay. And it goes to, in a lot of cases, this is where I get into the, how does the game begin. Um, how, you know, what, what, are the, what is the actual language mm -hmm. and discourse and stuff? So are you talking about kind of like diction? Like what are the, in, what are the actual words that I want to use to describe? Very often, yeah, about vocab and jargon and lingo, mm -hmm. yeah. And this is one of those reasons, I think, for me, why, why my placeholder holder titles tend to become titles, mm. is because I work that placeholder into the core language of the game. And, and very often for me, there are a lot of words that recur. So um, peril comes up a lot, um, menace or you know, threats, obstacles, challenges, things that are just kind of core to these kind of conflicts recur. But where are those words used and by whom? Right, mm -hmm. and that's a big part of it for me is the difference between player jargon and character jargon, and this is where the design very often most intersects the fiction for me is at this stage where I'll, like if I'm in I don't want to say stage because it's going in the order and there's more you know but these are the things that keep coming up but is that when I'm talking about the core moment of play I still might I don't know if the sword is a sword or an energy sword or a lightsaber or a psychic axe or whatever it is so the the this is where the setting and the and the motif the themes start to to interact with the gameplay a little bit more, even though all this is undoable. I can all Z my way out of this if I needed to, but is that this is where the themes in the play really interact in a way that it's about. So, so it's about staying up all night, but, yeah. but why is it about that? And how is it about that? And do we just say, is it, a to is it a token? My character is exhausted or not exhausted? Right, do you talk about exhaustion or do you talk about insomnia? Because those are different. Do I, have a, do I have a D20 that I use to indicate how long I've been awake? Do I have 2D20 you know, or whatever mm -hmm. it is? So it's not just the language language, but it's also this is componentry goes into this in some ways. I tend to kind of brute force my way through a lot of language where I just put down something super basic and plan to revisit it later. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But so I, I find that you know a lot of my word choices are, are probably less inspired than those of many of my, my peers um, because of that. But 
because the tabletop games that we design are generally a written in a written medium, right? right and they're for an experience that is primarily spoken. The, the the diction really matters. The word choice can really affect, if not the maybe mechanical details, right? Like if it's a, your exhaustion D twenty or your insomnia D twenty, that doesn't change whether it's D twenty or not. But it can change the application of how it's used at the table mm-hmm. and kind of the connotations that its use or its access or its diminishment exactly. or its gaining numbers or whatever, the context changes based on, on your word choice. So here's the last thing that I'm curious about, and it's not exactly my, I don't know that it's one of my three, and I was waffling as to whether or not it should be. But I know that this comes up, and this isn't just for game design, it's for all creative stuff that I do, but it absolutely affects my designs, is this one. Why now? I guess I never think about that. This actually probably comes out of my specific uh, design education. Mm -hmm. For those who don't know, I went to essentially product design grad school um, and have a degree through that program. So my literal education in this, which was a lot of digging down to try and get to the baseline why questions about projects and, mm-hmm. and initiatives and, and things that you're working on to the point where it almost becomes farcical because at a certain point you're doing it because it's interesting to you, you see a place for it in the market, you know you can achieve it and you need to make some money this month. You know, like there's some very basic answers to right. that that are really uncompelling, you know, that are boring. Those are boring answers, but right. they're also true ones. Why did so, you write this novel? I uh, have boat payments. Yeah, like... <laughs> I got to make rent. Yeah, Yeah. so, you know, why now kind of falls to me in that, in that category of, like, questions that they're not wrong to try and answer. Right. But you don't have to answer it if you want to do it anyway, right? Like, if, if I'm not having trouble working on a project, I generally am not going to dig down to, like, oh, why am I doing this? Do I need to do this right now? You know, I'm, I'm going to work on it until I get to a point where I'm like, can't work on this anymore. And then maybe I'll go and dig a little deeper to be like, what do I really want out of this? What am I really trying to do here? Mm-hmm. And those are worth answering. But so on one hand, I never think about that. But there is a flip side where there is stuff that I'll work on and then be like, I am not able to accomplish this yet. Right. And then I'll come back to it and be like, I'm going to take another stab at this with the last year of experience behind me or two years or whatever. And uh, sometimes it's like, oh, now I can do this. Great. This is awesome. And sometimes it's like, nope, still can't do it. Still not ready or still just don't have the insight to achieve what I want. Yeah, because my notebooks fill up so fast. I have many of them are terrible ideas, stupid ideas of mine, but that I write down ideas and I say, not yet, because I can't, like you say, I'm not, I don't have the raw materials or the time or whatever it is or all sorts of reasons to say not yet. But putting things in the order in which they're going to get released. Like prioritizing. Well, there's that, right? But then there's the meta there's the meta narrative aspect of it, which is like, I could do any of these three things next, but if I just do like if I do Always Never Now and then I do the sequel to Always Never Now, then I'm then I'm that's all I'm doing. I'm just I'm I, I just do those. So I put something in between and then I put something in between and then enough time goes by and I feel like, okay, I can do something that's kind of like Always Never Now again. It won't be too repetitious or it won't be too uh, pigeonholy or whatever it is. But also the question of, is now the time, either for the audience, is now the time when it's when I am just kind of personally in sync with a project? Like, am I, am I, do I have a, uh, I've worked on games, for example, where I have over time said, you know, I just don't have 
I'm either not angry enough or the right kind of angry to, to, to do this game correctly, or I don't care enough about what this game wants, needs to care about right now. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to put it off until I'm good and mad or good and sad or good and eager or good and driven, whatever it is, in sync with that game. And so that's part of the problem for me in often cases is that the amount of time, how long it takes to make a game, almost never a unit of time that is equal to my temporal resources, financial resources, mnemonic resources, or energy level. So that they all overlap in these weird staggered things and I need to have multiple games or projects or whatever they are mm-hmm. going at once so that I can be like, I woke up today and I feel ready to, to do great things. So if I go write about the apocalypse, mm-hmm. I'm going to do a, a, a bad jab, job at it and B, I'm going to be really sad by the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, how do I, how do I use that energy? I think it's pretty common to have multiple projects for just that sure. reason, right? I mean, I know that's what I do in uh, in all fields, in all like, creative fields, right? Whether they're work projects and personal projects, or or just different levels of project or whatever. Because yeah, you you need something both to give your brain a break and yeah. just focus on something else, and also uh, on the one hand, you you don't want to be in a place where you have to be in a certain mood every day to work. There's an element of it also, though, that sometimes you're in, in sync with larger movements, larger kind of cultural oh, forces yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think is both very difficult and probably creatively draining, if not bankrupt, to like try and always be releasing stuff that's in sync with pop culture or something like that. Right. But it, stuff syncs up sometimes. When this game is ready, it happens to be during a peak of whatever cultural resonance this has. I mean, there are certain yeah. calculated risks that can be taken there. Yeah, right? and sometimes you want to delay get this game something out. Yeah. a little bit that you're already working on or hurry something a little bit that you want to be working on. I mean, it kind of just so happens that professional wrestling is in an upswing right now. Mm. And, you know, I happened to release a wrestling game during a, a period that's been very good for independent wrestling as its own activity, as well as other independent wrestling publications like magazines and stuff. That wasn't a considered choice on my part. It was more like this thing that I'm interested in is gaining momentum, which means that I'm getting more interested in it, which means I'm seeing the possibilities in it to work with my craft, which means that, oh, now I'm going to work on this thing. Right. And like it all kind of rolls together. While um, other projects... I think I've you know released and they've just sunk like a stone because there's nothing culturally resonant about them at that particular time. And Although that's how it works. One of the one of the things I think to keep in mind about projects like that when you release something and it doesn't I don't even want to say when I say hit I don't mean it isn't a hit I mean it doesn't you can't even hear it thunk the board right? yeah it doesn't or the it, dart and it doesn't catch yeah it doesn't yeah. it doesn't find its audience but is that once it exists the time for it to find its audience more and more in the in the the searchable universe, the long tail universe, mm-hmm. means that the fact that it exists means that it gets invisible, unknown, unreported opportunities over and over and over and over again. So that if there is, without knowing it, right, and it may, not, it may, not, each of those has, I think, a less less of a chance than than the launch date does. When the thing is brand new, is always its best shot, but it's not its only shot. And so it's important sometimes, I think, to think about the fact that, as Mike Seliker says, uh, a game is late once, but it is bad forever. So if you if you keep a game an extra three weeks or a month or whatever it is in development so that it is good and you miss the release date of a movie that is, you know, vaguely similar and you think that maybe you could have made a bunch of money that month or whatever as people came home and said, how do I, what RPG do I, do I use to play, how to play this movie or whatever? If, you're, if you make the release date and your game is terrible, not only is it always terrible, but that is worse in many ways than just missing the release date and then releasing a great game. Because a great game has a better shot already. Right. And... The thing that's out is still out, and the game is still out, and they may still find each other, and they may still have an audience that long, you know, a long tail audience. I mean, it's yeah, it's part of the making a thing is always better than not making a thing. 
So I have a question here for you. This is your question or this is a question from the audience? Do we have questions from the audience? Not yet. And why do you think that is? We could ask them to ask us questions. There's an ask button right on the on the website. We should tell people about that in the in the podcast. Like in the show notes? No, just like as part of the audio. Really? We should we bring it up and talk about it on air? We could. We could just say, go to designgamespodcast.com and click the ask button. And you think that would work? He is at patreon.com slash ndpaletta. He is at patreon.com slash wordwill. In addition to supporting the podcast on Patreon, help us find listeners and help listeners find us by giving us ratings and reviews at your favorite podcast dispensary such as iTunes or SoundCloud. What do people even say at the end of a podcast? What happens if it just...